But I, I want to ask you, the 60s, all of a sudden, that the people we've been talking about, all of a sudden this rash of songwriters, almost all out of New York, yeah. uh, right in Tin Pan Alley, just like it had been maybe 20 years ago. Any reason for that? Um... There was a, you know, those two buildings there, just kind of like were magnets, and I guess they were, that's where all the publishers were. I mean, it really was like a publishing writer business at the time. Very few writers were publishing their own songs when I first came in the business. And I mean, it was like uh, you, you could go from floor to floor of um, in the Brill Building. I had very little to do with 1650. Um, I had an office that I could use as a writer in famous music. I was under contract. It seemed, I mean, listen, I grew up in New York. I guess a lot of people, I don't know what was going on in Philadelphia. I know I made a couple of trips over to Philadelphia to play songs for, what was it, Cameo Parkway? For, um, who was the very talented guy? For Bernie. Yeah, yeah. But you were different from the rest of them. You hadn't come out of Brooklyn or... No, I'd come out of... uh, Forest Hills, Hal came out of like Rosman. It was a very interesting time because everybody was sort of like writing with, um, you know, bouncing around. I write when I started writing with Hal, I'd write maybe three times a week with him, and uh, the person then that there'd be a, it was almost incestuous who he write with uh, in the afternoon. There'd be a switch off, you know, it's like a husband wife thing, you know. Then in the morning, I'd write with Bob Hilliard, and Bob Hilliard would write with the same um, music writer that Hal had just written. <laughs> you know. Was it very competitive, and, and were guys jealous of people, things like that? I, I, I'm sure. Why should it be any different than the... <laughs> 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 um, I just thought, listen, when I got out of... The first job I had was working with Victor Moan. I mean, I had no intention of being a songwriter. I mean, that's not really... I didn't know what I wanted to do. I just know I got out of the Army and I got a chance to play piano for Vic Damone and maybe conduct for him. When I got fired from Vic and I worked with the Ames Brothers, the songs that used to come in were so deceptively simple that I'd play them for the Ames Brothers. They'd come in or listen to them and listen in their meetings where they'd decide what they were going to cut. And uh, they were really doing simple songs like You, You, You. And I thought, Jesus, you know, I could write maybe four or five of these in a, a day. And uh, I just got, you know, married, first marriage. And um, I thought, like, give it a shot. I'm out on the road with the Ames Brothers. If I come back and I really dedicate myself to writing these five songs a day, boy, I'll just try I'd be very successful. I went a year without getting anything even published. Were you writing words and music? Or? I wrote with a couple of people, including Hal. And we got a couple of things, got things published, recorded. first song I ever got recorded was a song called Keep Me In Mind, uh, Patty Page. Ashamed of the song. I'm listening to it. It's about as trite melodically. I guess I stayed rooted to what I thought would work commercially of seeing these songs if they were sent to the Ames Brothers and they recorded them. But it's not so... It's the hardest thing in the world to write like a simple... Um, a simple melody. Deceptively simple that's still fresh. That well, when did doesn't it, sound stolen. You know? When and how did it click in you know, that you got into the groove? Well, I mean, the early songs, the early hits that I had, which were very... Deceptive, the direction that I eventually would go in. Um, the story of my life, Marty Robbins was the number one country in Western record. Um, I was very proud of that, you know, like uh, I remember working in, I was single at the time, I was working in Vegas with Dietrich. And uh, at the Sands Hotel, they had the Texas Copa Girls. And that was a very impressive fact that I had the number one country in Western song. <laughs> At the same time that they had these beauties all in from Texas, you know. It all relates to back to that again. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so there was an odd song from my first hit. And that followed like right afterwards by Magic Moments, Perry Como. So I find that both of those songs quite a bit different from 
where I wound up going musically with Dion or Shrells and, and the more black-oriented um, R&B records or R&B songs. At what point did you step out from the songwriter and really take the next step, arranging? Well, I started to like do that out of self-defense, you might say, I guess. Uh, I tapped into like an agreed... And maybe some Mitch Miller would say to me, I like the song very much, but it's uh, you got a three-bar phrase there. That's kind of unnatural. Make it a four-bar phrase, and I'll, I'll record it with so-and-so. So I tend to think, man, he must be right. Something wrong with the three-bar phrase, you know. I lost some good songs along the way, I mean, through different A&R men. Um... Somebody said, yeah, listen, that's a waltz you wrote. Nobody, they're not dancing to waltzes now. Make it, um, you make that in 4-4, four, four, and I'll record it. And I did it, and I ruined some songs. And I started to stand by, like, what I believed in and how it was born. And, and um, an A&R man for VJ Records. You probably remember. Was it Calvin Carter? Was that ring a bell? Something Carter? Carter, yes, yes, yeah. I remember him, yeah. Worked for Abner. Worked for Abner, right. So he, you know, heard the song, Make It Easy on Yourself. He said, why don't you go and write the arrangement? Do it with Jerry Butler. So I went and it was a real thrill, you know, first date that I did. And um, it was a pretty good hit with Jerry. And um, then I started thinking... All right, now, I want to become an arranger and become a producer out of self-defense. And that way, I got the responsibility. Um, if a, the record doesn't happen or it doesn't turn out the way I wanted it to turn out, it's only on me. You, uh, that record with Jerry Butler was the first of the number you did with black artists. You yeah. studied classical music, conducted for Victor Mullen and Marlena Dietrich, and had yeah. records, but where did they come with I thought it was interesting, you know, at the time that I was having, like, the, because I kept conducting for Dietrich and going to these different places and having these major hits that were either started black or they were half and half. Or I mean, you know, when we started with Dion, I mean, the, it really became like a steamroller. But I did record Tommy Hunt and Chuck Jackson and... What, what was there? Well, there was an access road right into Scepter Records, you know. And um, we all seemed to... Like with Dion there, it was like family and, and a lot of stuff. Lieber and Stoller were doing things with the Drifters. And, um, and we wrote a lot of ballads. And ballads all... Ballads just work better with a black artist, then and now. I mean, you know, I mean, there's more acceptability. I mean, certainly now, I don't... Did you have to learn anything? Mm -mm. sound, mixing, anything like that? Oh, yeah. Well, I, you, I mean, about black as opposed to uh, the, the normal pop. I watched... I thought Jerry and Mike in the studio were incredible. And we did some songs together where they were producing, and there were songs of mine, like Things with the Drifters that um, I thought they were absolutely brilliant, as brilliant as anybody I've ever seen in the studio. Their names pop up everywhere in almost every interview I've done. It's, uh, it's pretty unanimous that they regarded as uh, breakthrough people. Mm. To be, you know, in a business now where it's everything is under a microscope, you know? I put the percussion on this afternoon, it'll take three hours, and then we'll bring in a saxophone player, and then and it, it's endless, it's relentless. Um, we start talking about synthesizer parts, but to see to see something going down where Jerry Lieber and Mike Stoller, Mike would be inside and Jerry would be outside, controlling a rhythm section with three guitars, bass, two percussion players, including the drummer, everybody playing at the same time, and the vocalist singing at the same time. I'm making these great records. So, it was an experience to, um, I mean, I think you got to learn and grow with what you're... Anybody else that you flash on that you learned from? Well, I mean, I thought, I mean, I never made records like that 
and wouldn't even know how to, but Phil Spector was making records that I thought was done with mirrors or a magic act or something. I mean, it's like unbelievable sounds. And a lot of stuff is coming out of um, Detroit at the time. But there are two theories on it. I mean, you know, that... And he talked to Jerry and Mike about it, particularly Jerry, who used to say, you know, listen, I don't listen to the radio that much. I, I know what I'm hearing in my head, and I... It's the direction I want to go in. And, um, and the other thing is that I think you've got to listen to the radio. I mean, the two schools... I mean, I wouldn't... I think you can just totally disappear in this business if you don't know what's going on around you, what other records are. Um, it's hard work. You've got to listen to a lot of bad records. or Not bad records as much as things that don't exactly please you. Yeah, you always have to have a sense of why... People are flashing on this why. You have to listen to it. It's still what it is that they're looking by. You may not change your style, but you have to have some sense. For sure. Just to buy everybody's records, just to listen to producers. Mm -hmm. I tell you, another heavy influence on me, you know, was, listen, my roots were heavily uh, cared for by jazz. You know, I love jazz. I love growing up in in Long Island and... uh, when that music thing was happening, when that explosion of uh, suddenly Charlie Parker and Dizzy Gillespie were Tad Dameron, Thelonious Monk, Bud Powell, 20 light years ahead of the rest of the world, making sounds that were sounding like a total breath of fresh air. I mean, that probably made me say, I want to be involved in music somewhere. Because up to then, it's nice to hear a big band. I did like to hear the Woody Herman band. They sounded great. The, uh, the um, Harry James, the big man. My recollection of what I really wanted to do, did I want to be a songwriter? Oh, I can't remember saying things like that when I was 14 or 15. I mean, I didn't even like playing the piano. It was a chore. I would like to have been an athlete. I'd like to have been my... Like my father, you know, old Southern Conference fullback, you know, things like that. But I, um, I was short. Music for me was like a, a good access road to some kind of social contact because I was the smallest kid in a high school of 3,000 kids with the tallest basketball team in the city of New York. I'm the tallest, <laughs> and I was—I couldn't find a girl that I was like, uh, like uh, as tall as. And then after you know, I guess I had some shots of peanut butter or whatever it was. I started to grow, and I got—that's well, a terrible thing to have that. But I did find that by playing in a little band or knowing how to play the piano, people would speak to me, <laughs> like girls would speak to me. And some of the shyness would go away. So that was the, you know, the tap in for me. I had no burning desire to be. I mean, I thought I really at one time wanted to be, quote, a classical composer because I studied with Darius Milo. I studied with Henry Cowell. I went to those concerts. I listened to that music. But I also knew that you don't, you don't make any money. And you don't get fresh orange juice in the morning, and you don't live in a. Because I knew that it would be a hard road, and I also know that in my heart that if I was supposed to do that, and that I had a real passion and a feverish desire to do that, then I would have done that. So there can't be any of that in later years saying, "Well, if I, I, you know, my mother, I know my mother says, do you remember?" When Stokowski asked you to, after Promises, Promises Open, Stokowski asked you to write something for the American Symphony. It was very flattering that he... And I never could get it together. I couldn't get it together. One reason was that they... A symphony schedules things like three years in advance. So you're commissioned to write something that you're promising in three years will be delivered to them. And that's like, uh, that's hard for me. I mean, I know... I like things that 
you write something and, and you hear it. Or to know that you put it away and you're not going to do anything about it until uh, six months before your deadline. I don't like that. So I didn't do it. And I re- of course I regret it. How much do it? But I think I'm doing what I'm supposed to do. You know, I do believe that. The partnership with Hal David, when you finally have to have a friend with Mac David, and uh, boy, I just saw it. I said, I guess I'm Mac David having lunch with us in Palm Springs. So yeah. Bob did that. Why, why Hal David? Did you settle with him? Well, it's actually st- settled with two writers. One was Hilliard, though to a lesser degree than Hal, because he's a little crazier, Hilliard, you know. I love the guy. I mean, he was one of us. He was a pretty bizarre guy, you know, and very talented. And we wrote some good songs. I mean, you know. I mean, not many. Any day now, that's like one of my favorite songs that I ever wrote with anybody. And um, Mexican Divorce was... Uh, this was Hilly? Yeah. Yeah. And um, though with Hal, it was like... Hal's terrific. And Hal and I started having hits. And it's hard not to keep going with some of the... And we got this flow going when we had Dion. How did the, how did the Dion thing, uh, how did that come together? That all the, I don't think it's ever been the case of that. Uh, well, I'll tell you how that, how it happened. Um, you know, we were talking about uh, Hal David. You guys were, were very prolific, too. And you great. Was it hard to write to you? That was a real fun more fun for me was like being in um, in the studio I mean the actual writing process two guys sitting in a room staring at each other did he come up with ideas and you... sometimes yeah. and sometimes we start from blank and that was the toughest I'm a very slow writer always been very slow um, I can really labor over and pour over I mean uh, and Hal's wasn't v- you know, extremely fast. So it was a it was a good matchup. We'd write sometimes at uh, at this office they gave us a famous music that we could use any time. I like the idea of leaving the apartment and going and working in a in that Brill building, you know. And, but I must say the, that first year of, of thinking that it would be real easy was real hard and very difficult. A lot of rejections. Taking playing a song and somebody stopping you after eight bars. Jesus. Mm. I remember going in and uh, like for Connie Francis, and she took the needle off the, the demo. Oh, it's hard. And, you know, I always thought that there there were probably people, songwriters, actors, whatever, if they could have stuck it out, had the stomach for being not accepted and and uh, rejected and turned down and beaten up like that. But I mean, there's a point where sometimes you can't take it anymore, and you can't take. Well, it's so personal. The rejection on that level—it is something. Yeah, we don't like the song. We don't like the song, so you know, um, or they won't see it, and or Goldie Goldmark's not in, you know. (laughs) But but you know, from the other side of the desk, it's also excruciating to say no if you have any feelings at all. It's very hard. Listen, it's not. One of the most terrible things is when unpromises. That's quite a salad, Teresa. Hmm. Uh, you saying so? I don't think because that's. Um, you, the association with Dion, what had she done up until the time you guys came along? Nothing. She came in a background group um, to Jerry and Mike's office on a date that they were doing with the Drifters. We had a song, I think two songs on the day, to rehearse. And there were three girls. One was uh, Dion, Sister Didi, and um, Sissy Houston. And um, they sounded great. I didn't know which one sounded better. They sounded just really great. But Dion, you know, she had like a very unique looking, those cheekbones and pigtails and sneakers. It was kind of cute. Just had certain quality, you know. And she contacted us later on about maybe coming in, doing some demos for us, and we put her on a demo. 
think we're going to make it easy on yourself. And uh, she sounded great. Played it for Florence Greenberg. And she said, Why don't you produce her, cut her, beside her? And um, we did that, and when we made the record, I brought it into Florence's office. She heard the record and she cried. That's how much she didn't like it. <laughs> she really didn't like the record. Did you like the record? Uh-uh. The first record was what? The, uh, Don't make me over. Don't make me over. Uh, I needless to say, highly taken back and disappointed. Even thought maybe we should get her off and put her on Big Top, which we almost went with, with her. Uh, I mean, I think Florence really heard her in another way, you know, maybe softer, more like the Shirelles, not with this kind of big kind of emotional ballad that we had read. She got to love it very much as it started going up the charts. Florence. Was the eye easy to work with? Or? I would give a joke. A little taste. A little taste. Uh, uh, I don't... I'm going to put you. I'm going to close the sentence. He's going to love it. Yeah. <laughs> and then he would be. Able... I'm going to sell the house and move. <laughs> and so that started. And when we saw what she could do vocally, it was unlimited. Was she pretty content to? Let you guys take it over then? Yeah. How much did Hal have to do with production of records? Well, Hal was always kind of useful, you know, as a second voice. I mean, he can't write arrangements. Uh, It's always good to have a... No, a second opinion. But you, you were doing these arrangements? He danced well when we were cutting the tracks. <laughs> he danced <laughs> in the control. What kind of lady was Florence Greenberg? She's a great character. I liked her, you know. I mean, she had a lot of headaches at times. But, hey, here's a woman running a, a black label, you know, a white woman. Very unusual. How did it happen? I don't know the history of how she got that label or what's happened to Florence. But she was like unique. While you were doing Dion, uh, how active were you writing other songs? Oh, writing a lot. Writing for, you know, doing things with Pitney, Bobby Vinton, uh, and having hits with them. And were you involved at all in their production? What I was doing then is like really coming in as an arranger, protecting my song. I guess you could say I'm sort of like co-producing, the, not seeking to be listed as a producer, just... It's time to get my song cut. I'm going to come a bit and cut Blue on Blue. Um, Bob Morgan's the producer. That's fine. Just let me make a great record. What I'm feeling in the room. And uh, it's basically what producing is about, isn't it? No, I mean, it's really that, eh? In the early 60s, you were... This was, what, 63? Yeah, from... 63, 64, it's, you know, all started like... really hitting a group. Yeah. And Pitney we had some success with, too, and um, uh, I mean, things that it didn't cut, like, that were cut out here, like, that Snuffy was cutting, you know, sometimes that'd come out when they do it. Got into movies about this time, too. Started writing some title songs. Promotion songs. By being at famous music, like we sort of had a chance to write songs like Desperate Hours and The Blob was one of them. I wrote that with Mag David. Same. The Blob was good. Blob was a hit. Um, listen, it was always fun. Do you recall how you felt during this period? Or you were so damn busy, so many things. I just kind of went through it. I don't think I... 
took too much time to kind of just smell the roses or enjoy it or perceive it, understand mm-hmm. how much money I was making. or And then suddenly I was performing, and I still didn't know what was happening. Any insecurities about what had run dry? Or... Always, always. It's a natural, I guess. Somebody said that uh, the thing that's most troubling about being a songwriter or a creator is you don't know where that talent came from. You don't know how you did it. Half the time I think I'm really good. I think I'm really special. Otherwise I couldn't really be fooling. Some people out there that really know and said to me, you're really good. Like Richard Rogers wrote me this letter. Like Carol King the other night said. I couldn't be really fooling them. But the other half of the time, I really think I'm faking everybody out. That I'm maybe derivative or... Really that's not such a fresh melody or I'm better with it but you were not really aware of your position in that whole lineup while it was happening uh-uh. so happy I could not even understand on top of the success why anybody give me money just to go in and play a concert of my music and give me the kind of money they were offering that Give me just uh, my stand up there with my back to the audience and conduct this orchestra and barely be able to speak to the audience because I'd be so nervous. I've been on stage a lot, you know, but behind acts, behind Dietrich, never had to speak. What triggered you in becoming a, an artist? Accident. Yeah. What, what happened? Charity. <coughs> a charity event here. Could have been the Golden Key, one of those things. Right after, I guess, won the uh, Academy Award for Butch Cassidy. And um, they, um, I guess somebody said, would you do it? Or approached Dan Cleary, or somebody at ICM. I don't even remember how it happened, but suddenly I was at the Beverly Hilton playing nine songs of the full orchestra. And the fade out, I think, because I just kind of fade the orchestra and stopped the band. <laughs> <laughs> how about the singing part? When did that come along and how? Well, I was singing on records very carefully. Very, the albums I made with uh, at AM. I don't think I sang anything on the Cap album, which is the first album that I have. Which I don't know how that came about either. Suddenly I was a recording artist on Cap. Maybe Dave wanted me to do it. The album did nothing in this country, but it had a lot of hits on it. A very big album in England, you know, it's like a top five album and a single with um, Trains and Boats and Planes. So I suddenly like going over to England and doing Top of the Pops and things like that. Conducting an imaginary band or playing an imaginary piano. I'm not, I've never been good, you know, historically at uh, being able to um, really chronicle what kind of drifted through the whole thing like unconsciously and I was very nervous about the performing that went very well at Beverly Hilton and people said I should do it really go out and do that concert and I know that the first concert I did was in, in San Diego and in a 3500 seat house and I you know, I was really terrified that and nobody would come, you know? So we didn't need a first act. That's what Danny Cleary told me. We did not need anybody on the bill. But uh, I said, gotta, gotta have, well, we got the carpenters who were just starting. And uh, they found out afterwards that, the, I mean, they sold out the morning of the, when they put the seats on sale, you know, and the, but I still, Listen, when I got into heavily into performing and playing Vegas twice, three times a year and uh, and doing the television shows with Dwight and Gary, I did lose uh, a certain flow and time to write. Definitely. And um, it's like anything else. If you start, you, you know, you're, you're playing pretty good tennis and you stop and you go away from it. 
It's very hard to come back and start hitting that ball again. I also found it was easier being out there performing. Um, than writing new songs. I mean, when you just had to recreate what you already written, people pay you good money. <laughs> so, I mean, I think I really did get off the road, I mean, off the right track that I was supposed to be on by, but yeah, no regrets, everything was working fine. And Were you still writing? Only not as much? Output was very, very down. It took forever on a motion picture we did out here. Except the, uh, Lost Horizon. Oh. It took an enormous amount of time. And during that time, you couldn't cut anybody, you couldn't. And then we had a famous lawsuit, if <laughs> you remember, with Dion, which you remember so well, Jim. Yes. Yeah. What, what happened with, uh, you had this enormous run with Dion. And then that, that ended? Uh, well, it basically ended Hal and I were kind of coming apart a little bit. Huh? Really? really coming about. No, coming apart really over. You know, I just felt this here I am. I mean, there were a lot of things, you know. I mean, it's like a marriage. Any relationship, you know, and uh, nothing lasts forever. We could have been getting a little cooler in what we were turning out. We sure weren't writing hit songs or marketplace songs when we were doing Lost Horizon. That took a lot of time. So if you're thinking that way, like you're writing a show, you're not in the studio. And um, that took a lot of a uh, lot of um, energy, particularly on my part. Because after the songs were written, I had to teach singers how to sing, I had to work. It's fucking endless. All the time having some grave questions about this picture, you know. <laughs> and um, afterwards, you know, the picture opened and, and just like, uh, I guess I felt that, you know, how sitting in Mexico, he's getting the same money that I'm getting for this picture, the same amount of points, everything. And on top of everything else, it's just like, it was just time to not do anything together for a while. Of course, that had a very direct bearing on Dion, since we were producers and writers. And um, so I felt badly about that. I know you were involved and through that whole process. We didn't deliver a very good package to you, your first, first album that you had with her. And uh, I think it's probably right around the time that we were writing the Lost Horizon thing. Who knows? Maybe we were running out of steam. We wrote some bad songs in there. I mean, there's just some bad songs. Did you think they were bad songs at the time? No. No. Obviously. They just lost perspective. I would never do that. I got just too much, too much integrity, you know. I just, like, care so much about it. I mean, like, the, the, the story, like, that I keep going back to, like, when... I had number one and number four songs in this country. At the same time, I'm in Paris and I'm sitting in Paris in Dietrich's apartment for three days because she's going to make a recording for the German market of three songs, none of which I wrote. But I'm going to write the arrangements and I'm, I want to make them just the greatest possible arrangements I can because that's the way... I function. So it's not important that I got the one and number four song in this country. All that I care about, what's the, what's, i got to make these arrangements work. What, we're going to sell 50 records in Germany with Dietrich singing? I mean, you know, the realism is, you know, absurdly swept aside. But it's, uh, so as far as putting a, a weak song in an album or a, making a weak album, I don't think I know what I'm doing. It, but boy, afterwards, you know, it's done. Um... I think I missed a couple of songs on Dion's album that's out there now, but uh, hey, you write them and you know, maybe you blew it in the production, maybe the song wasn't that good. What was Broadway like? You know, I 
One run at Broadway and had, um, well, you can't get sick out on the road with a Broadway show. That's, that's, that can really screw you up a lot. I mean, to be in the hospital um, and feel shitty all the time, you know, and to rewrite songs with pneumonia. Uh. But the show, when it hit, like all the way, you know, even with work that we had to do in Boston, we knew it was a hit. And I got sick two days later and never came out of it, you know, so. Even got out of the hospital after a week. You should go somewhere to get over in the morning. You shouldn't be writing songs and going to the theater every night and then on to Washington. So all the time I'm feeling. But it made me crazy because I said, I want to be down there like trying to control the band. Uh, I don't know, the tempos. What, you're going to stay on Broadway and conduct the show every night for two years after the show opens up? I just know I got a call from uh, from Merrick um, in the first week after the show had opened. He called me in Palm Springs and gone to, like, really try to get over this pneumonia. How do you like that green drink? Sure. What's some more? No. No, of course not. <laughs> <laughs> I'd gone to Palm Springs and, and Merrick called me there and he just said, listen, I just want you to know that in the orchestra today for the Saturday matinee we had seven subs including the drummer. And I said, ah, oh, shit. And I want you to know who's in the audience. Richard Rogers is in the audience. So, that's what's happening with your music. And my music is not that easy to play so that the idea that a drummer's coming in and sight reading this music un-fucking-believable. So it made me crazy because that's one of the problems that I got, like, is the sound. But we did some invent real innovative things with promises and fought to try to make it sound great and brought Phil Ramone and Phil was involved in it right from the time we went out on the road and I admired Merrick for, you know, going that way, you know, going along with it. Is, is the theater something... Yeah, Carolina, we're ready to show, sure. It, how difficult is it for uh, in Broadway? I used to know a lot of in Boston. I used to know the Lessers, the Frank Lesser and Adler and others. After you spend three years writing songs, all of a sudden you're in two weeks. You now have to write three new songs, rewrite something. Could you work under that pressure? How difficult is it? I did. You did. I had to write about three, four songs out on the road where you're not feeling well. I mean, I, that's the toughest. But we did. The road never fall in love again, which was the biggest. That came, that was one of the ones I had. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Wrote that the day I got out of the hospital because they said it had to go in the show. That's where Hal got that line. What do you do? Because a girl got them germs. Catch pneumonia after you do, she'll never phone you. So, what was the question that the. Well, we're talking about the pressure of writing. The pressure of the pressure. Well, the hardest one I found, when I'm looking for, in retrospect, you say you write a whole score and you write it for like these imaginary characters that exist in the book and then you see the show cast and you hear these voices and maybe they're different people look different they maybe sound different than the way you visualize them now they're singing songs that you already had written for a kind of voice maybe that you might have heard in your mind and sometimes it doesn't work so sometimes you got to say hey that's a real good voice or that voice will go not going to work on this. I mean, maybe I just get real crazy in that area, but I like it when I see what I got to write for, the kind of singer, the voice. Well, do you ever get crazy when you heard uh, other versions of some of the hit songs by artists and mm. arrangements you didn't do? Yeah, you know, they just kind of maybe change a chord. It particularly bothered me on a new song. I hated that one. Like, uh, somebody go in. And I know one instant, you know, where, you know, Brooke Benton, I mean, he wouldn't like learning the melody when a house is not a home. And I mean, you know, he gave me like a real, busted my balls, you know, like, I had to learn how to write, you know, read music, but it spoiled my soul. And so, but he was getting paid to sing it in the picture. And I understand why he couldn't sing the right melody, you know, or let me teach it. I mean, it was one of those, you know, things where they kept me out of the date, they didn't let me come, you know. So, you know, you, you don't win that one either by going in and cutting the same song with Dion, which is exactly what we do, and they both want one wine, they up going to 26, and the other one goes to 28 on the charts, and it's 
You did too. The biggest songs you've had were well, the two biggest records with Jackie DeShannon. Uh, how did you decide that was an artist that you wanted to cut? A funny thing about that song, What the World Needs Now is Love. I never believed in that song very much. I mean, I wrote it. I guess I must have liked it, finished it. Played it for Dion, who didn't love it. I mean, this is a story. The story has changed many times, but this is basically a story. And Dion remembers it happening that way, because everybody would say, why'd you give it to Jackie DeShannon, not to Dion? How come Dion got cheated out of that song? It's right at the time you were cutting it. But she didn't love it. And I didn't love it. When she didn't love it, I didn't love it. And Hal, when we were going to cut Jackie, Hal said, he'd play that song with the world. And I was like, ah. So, I mean, so Hal's really, you know, good like that. And sing. he believed in the song. But then I heard her sing. Like, she, she said, Jesus, it sounded like she owned the song. And we took her in the studio. And it was a very good record cut. And it was a very good experience. I remember records. The experience of the process being made. I mean, that's... I say that's the fun part, or that's the real passion, or the joy part for me. To see it come to fruition, to see something really magical. It makes me a little crazy in the studio now, because it's all so separated, you know? And it's all in parts, and it's splintered, and, you know, it's you fragmented. You can't feel it. Well, you can feel it. But you can't get the thing of, like, what it felt like when Dion sang Anyone Had a Heart. And we made this record, and there was a 7-8 bar in there. Nobody had ever seen a 7-8 bar in the, in a recording studio before it seemed like, and you know, it was like, kind of a, and I didn't do it intentionally. I went, I changed uh, meter every bar practically. And, but again, I didn't do that just to break rules. But when we got it going, man, it was enough to just like make you cry. And her vocals, I mean, so it's all happening right before your eyes and ears. And it was very thrilling. She sing live? You know, oh yeah, always, always, always. Would she still make a record live? No. I wouldn't make a track without her. Everything we did had her voice. Her. I eventually saved 70% of it as a keep, right from the scratch vocal. There's another song you did that was kind of off the track and off the wall, but what's no pussycat? Yeah. What's, what's that story? Well, I just happened to be in the right place at the right time. I wanted to score a picture in the worst way. And it's a hard area to break into. And I happened to be in London at a time. That, um, I was over there um, doing a television show because at the time that, that album, that Cap album, had done well enough to warrant um, Granada or one of those to do a, a little cheapo special with me. Huh? I just met Angie at the time and she flew over there with me. And... Uh, we're standing in the Dorchester. It just happened to be the right timing. And Angie knowing Charlie Feldman running into him in the lobby. What are you doing here? What are you doing with this thing? this picture? How is it great? Got to get a composer. What are you doing here? I'm here with this composer. What was he written? I walk on by. Then he'd ask Clotilde, and Clotilde said, Oh, I love that song. Anyone at all, I love that song. Let me meet him. I like to meet him. So I met Charlie, and he showed me this rough cut. I'd never seen a rough cut of a movie. It just totally spooked me out. I didn't know that. <laughs> didn't quite understand it. But he, he took a chance on me. And I was paralyzed, like, with uh, fear. I couldn't even write. I mean, I knew how much time I had to write it, and I never got a note written until like less, less than three weeks to go before scoring. And I kept watching the thing... Peter Sellers' face in that movie and I've, I love the movie so I've, I had a good time because I could watch it on the movie all in and laugh it was a, but I wrote it I really wrote this theme the What's New Pussycat right off of um, how Sellers looked um, his craziness and the movie and it became this waltz you know how yeah uh, and um, I played it for Charlie and he really Charlie Feldman really liked it. He was worried that they couldn't maybe dance it because it was a waltz. <laughs> Gordon Mills brought Tom Jones over to here at the flat that I was renting, you know. 
come to know what the fuck it was about. I mean, he was so rooted in soulful singing, you know? He had that one hit, and it's not unusual. And this would be his second record. I guess Gordon must have seen the value in it. Tom looked like he was drawing a total blank as I played this song. <laughs> but we did get into the, the, the spirit of it all. He got caught up in it. Listen, it was like a... That was the first experience with the picture? I've written some, you know, like I said, like a house and not a home. And, um, some songs that should have been pictures like Wives and Lovers that if it had been, you know, would have... But they still became hits even though they were titled. Wise and Lover. I like that song, too. That's a hard song to write. That took me... That was another one of those three weeks of painful process of writing it, you know? You listen to it now, it's very sexist. Uh-huh. It's true, Sinatra. I heard Sinatra was cutting that song. I got so excited. And when I had the record... I got so brought down. <laughs> the reason I got brought down, it's a Walt. But they did it with the bass band. And they did it in 4 4. I was at a Quincy. Or Hammond. I mean, it just doesn't swing. I mean, it, does, it doesn't belong in 4 4. And Quincy says it's the band. The band used to play in 4, so we wrote the arrangement in 4. Frank, <laughs> <laughs> Oh, oh Jesus. Did you ever think much of the other writers of the time while you were out there doing it? Uh, who did you admire that was. I like what Tony Hatch was writing at the time. He's writing really good. Yeah. I love Carol King. I thought she was writing there. A lot of the Lieber Stowe stuff was excellent. Bill so Spector, Jeff and Ellie, yeah. Paul Simon things. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and of course the Beatles. Uh, cool. yeah, yeah. Did you meet them during that period at all? Yeah. I met, um, met a couple of them, yeah. you know, when I was in England. No. Actually, they recorded a song of mine. And so I was on the first bill with them. That's right, I conducted for Dietrich at a Royal Command performance, and they were on the bill. You know, right at the beginning. And it was like, you know, Royal Command performance, where they must have had like 18 acts. Or, and um, I got to meet him there, that's right. I'd seen posters of them when I was in Sweden with Marlena. So these guys, you know, before it happened here. And um, then I heard they cut a song about it on their first album, Baby It's You. I agree. I had spoken a minute or two in dress rehearsal that day. Any, any arrangers influence you at all? Or are you admired? Um, Stan, Stan Applebaum. I mean, there's some great arrangers, Billy May. Not that I was writing songs or making records like that. Nelson Riddle was brilliant. But you were making rock and roll. They weren't making any rock and roll records. Uh-uh. You were making rock and roll records that was so different from the mainstream of rock and roll records. That, uh, that obviously wasn't a conscious move. You just making yeah. the songs you wanted to Yeah, play. I was doing... I wasn't thinking what, what would be different, what would be successful. I mean, I tried that once before, say, in one, a year without getting a song, you know, thinking, thinking, I just wrote what... And I guess I learned about orchestration by going to school. And um, you can learn things. There's some terrific books that, uh, like the Mancini uh, book on scoring is, is fantastic. And... Um, any young arranger who wants to, I mean, to be able to have that access to a book like Mancini's, I think there's another book out by Don Sebesky, Sights and Sounds or something like that. You what's, know. The, what's the biggest kick for, for a songwriter? So, uh, having a hit or hearing it done well? Or? Well, 
Listen, it's sometimes when you hear somebody whistling your song and you don't know you're around, that's pretty good. Um, I used to get terrified every time a new record would come out and I'd hear it on the radio. You're going to be hearing it for the first time on the radio. I totally get freaked out. Almost didn't want to hear it because I knew it was going to, it was going to make me disappointed. I knew it wasn't going to be as good as I wanted it to be. Um, because it's just the process, you know. I mean, I used to get so crazy. I mean, I'd go out to pressing plants to see what they were pressing on, see what garbage they were pressing on, screaming at quality control people, you know, selectively picking where the DJ copies would be uh, pressed at. I mean, even I tried to get the first record I ever was connected with, make it easy, and I said, I was calling Abner to get him call, call a record back. And I said, we sold 7,000 records today in Philadelphia. Well, what are you talking about? I said, but if it really had been pressed right, man, you could have sold 11,000 records. <laughs> <laughs> after, uh, after you uh, split with Hal and the other thing, you, you tried a whole bunch of things. You, any satisfying moments in there? I kind of... I started drifting. I mean, I was performing a lot. I tried writing with Bobby Russell. That that really was a... That didn't work out well. Then... I wrote something for the Houston Symphony, wrote an album, and recorded it with them. And um, that was something that I felt like I really wanted to get out of my system, but I kind of really was out in left field then. I must have thought that was going to be a commercial success. I must and then my friends, Gil and Cherry, and, and they're very supportive of it. But I know now, in retrospect, when they heard it coming back, they said, what are we going to do with this, you know? But I'm proud of the album. I mean, I like that album. Glad I did it. Then I met the lady I'm living with. <laughs> she spray you on or writing again, writing songs? Song? No, it's made like putting blinkers on a horse, you know? Yeah. I mean, you either have the ability to do it, she can't make me. It's still something in me that I don't have. But she kind of reined me in a little bit and at least pointed me in a, in a direction of that wasn't so far out in left field. We, Hal and I had tried to get back together on one project, which um, we wrote some songs, and, you know, after the lawsuit, or while the lawsuit was still going on or something. It was great to have all that stuff past you, you know, I mean, so the fact that Dion and myself were friends again, as Carol's lyric and uh, the television theme that, we wrote last year for Finders of Lost Love from that wonderful television show, Finders of Lost Love, but Dion wound up singing it. I mean, they're great lyrics. They put the, put the past behind you, leave your heart open. It's great not to, you know, have a backlog of um, um, baggage, angry, angry moments, um, angry thoughts, recollection. I mean, listen, there was also a period, you know, when I was going through, like, there was a lawsuit. When you go through lawsuits, it takes energy away, to please. You go through something like that, it's rough. Um, I went through a lawsuit with uh, my ex-business manager. That was another two years. So it wasn't exactly like I had a free... Um, very open shot to just be able to concentrate on my music. I mean, that, there's just so much focus you can put in a day if you, you're troubled about your relationship's not doing well, you've got a lawsuit going on, you've got, and it's easier to, to move to like those kind of pillars of um, the kind of obsessive behavior, you can revolve around it and you don't have to sit down at the piano. You can just dwell on anger or what your lawyer just told you is going to happen next. It's hard enough to just go on a day-to-day business without 
I love doing Butch Cassidy. I mean, it's like a great, great movie to deal with a great, great movie. But just to do a movie, because they pay a certain sum of money. Yeah, by the third time, you know you're going to be real bored looking at this. Well, you want to direct one or write one? No, no, no. No, I'm not into that. This is hard enough writing music, Joe. Sure. Uh, listen, we're... We're doing good, right? I mean, friends. Well, that was a great thrill, you know. To come back with Dion, just come at that amount of time, too. I mean, she had some help on the record. You know, there. But to have that big a head, and to do it, you know, with the woman you love and you're living with and, you, and produce the record. I mean, it's a very satisfying, gratifying feeling. Um... And the thing with Michael McDonald and Patti LaBelle record, if we can bring that home too, you know, and have that as a... Any songs uh, that are particular favorites in three, four, five? Alfie. Alfie. Or the Wilderness Now is Love, Anyone Had a Heart. How yeah. was, was the Alfie story? Uh, Alfie was a picture song. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Howard Koch believed in a, a song going in. And um, fought for it, fought for us. Hard song to write. I had the lyric. Hal gave me the whole lyric, basically the whole lyric. And I said it. It took me three weeks. Put myself through many changes. It's not an easy process. I think I have to make it hard on myself to realize that it's good. If it comes too easy, it can't be very good. When, when it's through a process like that, when you finish writing, put the last dot on the, on the page. Do you think it's terrific, or are you insecure and you're waiting for someone to tell you? I don't know anymore. You know, if I put myself through that many changes. Um, yeah, I know it's good. I know it's good. Otherwise, it wouldn't be finished. <laughs> and somebody else might come in and shoot it down and say, that's terrible. Anyway, I know that this is not the answer right now. I mean, this business is just too weird and too unpredictable. But at the moment, we should keep writing and producing for Black X. Because Black X can take a ballad and take the kind of melodies I can write when you put that same song with a white artist, you don't have a chance, you know. But I guess it's been that way for some time now. How about Carol's lyrics with white artists? Fine. She has a level of emotion that seems to be universal. But she's honest. I mean, black or white. Carol's a very... She doesn't use filler words. She writes real words, real thoughts truthful statement and truth is the answer like in what, what's, the whatever. Best, what's the best lyric Al David ever wrote as far as you're mm. Alfie was a bitch Alfie. it was great San Jose was wonderful how's wonderful how's wonderful lyric with great ideas with great ideas yeah and he says such a modest kind of guy you know you look at how he met this girl he, when he was like probably going to high school been with her ever since. I mean, look like there's a normal, like an accountant, dentist or something, you know? I mean, you don't see him out getting smashed, rolling a joint. And those ideas <coughs> spring out of there. Yeah, 
maybe it's all like through a channel. Maybe that's how people like me and people like Al, maybe we all write that way. Certainly the ones that aren't looking like crazed artists, you know? Normal people. Well, thank you, sir. Hey. This is terrific. This is great.